followers of Christ are called to pursue reconciliation and grant gracious forgiveness. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Folks, I want to start off today by telling you about something. This is some years ago when this first happened here. Something that I did that was really stupid. Uh, can you find it hard to believe that I would do something stupid? Who thinks that that couldn't possibly happen? Well, no, I did. It was something really stupid that I did, which was later then compounded by even more stupid things that I did in response to the original stupid thing. What that was is this was some years ago. I was a little bit younger when I wore a younger man's clothes then. Some of you may recognize that line. But uh, I, I thought that, you know, that, that I could be uh, Mr. Muscle Man and I was helping out with a project with that and, and carrying things and lifting and throwing very heavy things, which I really shouldn't have been doing. And in the process, managed to get myself not one but two hernias uh, from that, right? And so anyway, so I had that. And that wasn't a pleasant experience to be dealing with the hernias. But you know what? I could deal with it because, you know what? I'm tough. I can take the pain, right? You know, so I'll, I'll handle this. Well, so anyway, so I never bothered to get, a, you know, to have them repaired. I never didn't want to deal with the I didn't want to deal with the hassle of the surgery. It was too much to deal with, right? I'll be just fine. I can handle it. Well, meantime, then, I changed jobs and my insurance changed. And that was at a point, you know, there have been some changes since then, but that was at a point, remember when you would hear those terms, pre-existing condition, right? So then it became a pre-existing condition, so now it was just like, okay, besides, I should have dealt with it long ago, but I didn't bother to do it, and now even if I were to do with it, now then you've got, you know, there's, there's the insurance isn't going to cover it. So again, so I just didn't bother. I can take the pain. I'm strong. I'm tough. I'll just deal with it. I don't want to deal with what I would have to go through to, to, to fix it, right? It's just not worth it, I thought. Well, the day finally came, and I'm going to be a little bit graphic here, but sometimes it's necessary, right? I realized that one day when I would have to, at the end of the day, I would go to a wall, and I would sit up against the wall, and then I would walk my feet up against the wall so gravity could kind of pull back things into place, if you know what I mean. And I realized, you know what? Maybe you really ought to do something about this. And I see Dr. Nils over there. He's just shaking his head, right? And so anyways, I was like, all right, fine. So I did, and I had the surgeon. And I have to tell you, it was brutal. It was miserable to go through. But once it all healed up, it's like, ah, that's better. I really should have done that a long time ago, right? I really should have done that a long time ago. Well, you might wonder, what does that have to do with what we're talking about here today? Well, because we're going to be talking about something that is hard to do. And we may avoid it, because it may be a painful thing. It may be uncomfortable. may not want to do that. But when we do that, afterwards we're like, oh, okay, I'm glad I did that. So we're going to talk about a difficult thing to do. But something that's very important, though, for us to do, though, today. First, I want to think about this, though, that we are followers of Jesus. To follow Jesus means what? To imitate him, to do as he does. Now, we're all working on that. I'm still working on that. We are all a work in progress, aren't we? But as Christians, disciples, students, learners, followers of Christ, we're called to watch him, 
and imitate him to do what he did. Watch and learn from him. Do as he did then. And so we're going to see what he, what he did and what he tells us to do in something that can be very difficult, but we must do. We must do, though. Continuing here, unique, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Continuing this story, or the, the story of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, a harmony of the Gospels is found in this book, One Perfect Life. Dealing with the subject, what is this thing you have been talking about? I'm not talking about surgery here. I'm talking about something else that can be difficult and painful, but we must do. What am I talking about? So you got it. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Something that can be hard to do. The things Jesus tells us in the text today can be hard to do. Just like that surgery was hard to do. But we're much better off doing it and then receiving the freedom that is ours through forgiveness then. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 35. And here is the point that I want us to take away from this today. Followers of Christ are called to pursue reconciliation and grant gracious forgiveness. Pursue reconciliation and grant gracious forgiveness. Is that an easy thing to do? Pursue reconciliation? Forgive? It isn't. But sometimes it's like, it's like that surgery. I didn't want to deal with that. But when you find yourself walking up a wall to put your innards back into their proper place, sometimes our spiritual innards are all out of whack because we refuse to do what the Lord has told us to do, right? To have that surgery of forgiveness and reconciliation then. So we're looking again, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 35. We are called to pursue reconciliation and grant gracious forgiveness. First, a little context for our text here. Jesus has been speaking of the Father's heart for his little ones, his children, that is, believers. And he tells them the parable of the lost sheep. Remember, we looked at this last time, Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Who are his little ones? His children, right? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now here I think there's a, Jesus tells this parable, it's a, in a couple of different instances. One, I think, in this instance, the one who is straying is a believer. A believer who has sinned, a believer who is struggling, and, the, and how the shepherd would leave the 99 to go to find that one and to restore them, to return them, because that's his heart for it. That's the shepherd's heart for that wandering sheep. Now, in a different context, I think it's, a, it's the story of the, that lost sheep, that wandering sheep, is, it's, unto, it's salvation that is in picture there. But here, I think the picture is of a wandering believer, a sinning believer. 
and how the Father's heart is to bring that one to restore them to fellowship in the flock here. And so just as the shepherd would leave the 99 to go in search of the straying sheep, so too the father goes after his straying children. He cares deeply for them and rejoices over the return of the one who had strayed. So in light of that, as followers of Jesus, what should be our attitude toward other believers? To have that father's heart, right? What should be our attitude then when they have strayed or when they have sinned against us? Should we despise them? Remember, what did he say? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Why might you despise them if they sinned against you, right? So look at what he says, because from there, sorry, Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church... Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. What is this all talking about here? I think it's speaking of reconciliation effort and promises. Reconciliation effort and promises. The goal in all of this, sometimes people read Matthew 18 and they want to beat it over the head of other people, right? But the goal of that, what, is ultimately it's about reconciliation that springs from a a fatherly heart of love and concern for the one who's straying, the one who has sinned, right? And this then too ought to be our heart, a desire to reconcile. When we reconcile what? We're setting a relationship right, addressing a problem that has come between us. Does that ever happen in the church that, that problems come up between two believers? Does that, ever ha- has that ever happened here in this church? I've heard it's happened in some other churches, right? No, it happens. It happens in every church, doesn't it? Whenever you have two human beings or more, I guarantee there's going to be conflict, right? And sometimes that conflict may be sinful. We sin against one another. And the goal then ought to be always reconciliation, setting the relationship right. And so Jesus gives us the prescription for surgery here, and we might not like it, and we might want to avoid it, because this can be painful, right? To make this effort to forgive, as we're going to read about more in just a moment here. Now, it's true, reconciliation is not always possible, is it? You can't reconcile someone who refuses to reconcile to you. 
But it ought always be the goal. It ought always be the effort on our part. We're told here, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. Now you notice we're not talking about disagreements or preferences or personality quirks or even character weaknesses. We all have our character flaws and weaknesses, don't we? We all have personality quirks. We all have preferences. We all have opinions on things. And what does the scripture tell us to do about all those things? We're told to what? To bear with one another. Cut each other some slack on those things, right? But here we're talking about a situation where where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. This is sin. This is a more grave situation. And some sins are more serious than others, aren't they? Now, it's true in one sense, all sins are equal in that they are offenses against God and that they disqualify us you know, from heaven, right? But some sins have far-reaching consequences, don't they? Some sins do are more serious than others. And so we're told, if your brother sins against you, this is something that has wounded you. And it's a sin. But if it is a sin, and it has wounded you, Jesus lays out the surgery here for us to deal with it. Here's the procedure. We know this. We've all read this before. But how many of you know it's very easy to know what to do, what we're supposed to do. It's another thing to do it because it can be very hard to do that. And I'll be the first to admit, I have not always done what I know to do in this. We as a church have not always done what we know to do in this. But this is the word of God. This is what he tells us. This is the, this is the great physician's prescription for the problem, right? So he says, if it is a sin, if it is what? Go to your brother or your sister privately and attempt to resolve it face-to-face, one-on-one, with the goal of reconciliation, right? Go privately, one-on-one, with the goal of reconciliation. This is, we're told to do this. We know this. But oftentimes, this is not what we do, is it? Why don't we go to that person right away? Pride. Still angry. Fear. Might be hard. It's uncomfortable. It's <laughs> so rather than doing that, what, what do we do instead? Well, oftentimes, what do we do? We, we tell everybody but the person who offended us, right? We make sure everybody else knows how this person has wounded us or sinned against us. But Jesus says, what? You talk to that person, and we do what? We talk to everybody but that person about it, right? So we gossip. Or perhaps we stew in anger or resentment. Or maybe then we look for payback. Right Now, we may not be thinking, I'm plotting vengeance against this person. We may not be actively, consciously thinking, how can I pay this person back? But it's ultimately what comes through then, isn't it? 
in our attitudes or our words or what we say about that person to others, what are we doing? We're getting vengeance or payback by how we talk about them or with others, aren't we? But Jesus says, go to that person. And he says, so if, if you go to that brother, you go to that sister, and they hear you. Now, when Jesus says they hear you, he doesn't mean you know the, the sound waves enter into your ear. There, it means what if they hear you that is that they understand and they repent of that then what you have won your brother or sister that is you've wrecked you've set the relationship right you've won your brother or your sister when you go to them and they hear you now i'm sure this is something many of us we have experienced we have this experience we've seen this and we've done this and no one else needs to know about that. If they hear. But if he will not hear. Interesting, it says, says, if he will not hear. There's an element of willfulness there in that volition, choice, right? It says, if he will not hear, if he refuses to hear, he refuses to listen, or he just isn't getting it, then Jesus says, what should we do next? Not there. We're not there yet. I know you're eager to get there, aren't you? You know, no, we're not there yet. No, he says what? Take, you're, you're, you're a couple steps ahead of us here, right? He says what? Take one or two witnesses with you so that, why? Everything may be established. Now, this is coming. The inspiration for this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where they were told when there was conflict among God's people that there were to be two or three witnesses to establish everything, what, to establish the facts of the conversation. How many of you know if you have a private conversation you know, with somebody else that, and you come out of that, there's a good chance there's going to be two very different stories of what happened and what was said, right? But what if you go then with two or three witnesses so that everything may be established, meaning what? No, these others are there. They heard, they saw, they know what was said and what wasn't said. How many of you had times where, where somebody is, is, is claimed that, that you said this and that, and you're like, what? Right? But if you had witnesses there, they may say, oh yeah, he's right. He, you did say that, or you didn't say that. Right? So the two of the witnesses, what, to... And again, what is the goal here? To beat the other person up? No, the goal is what? Reconciliation. But you bring the witnesses in order what? To establish the facts. So there's one story. Well, there still may be another story out there. But (laughs) you've got the witnesses to say, no, this is what was said. This is what happened. And also, I think it's the case sometimes with witnesses, what can do? That can put a little friendly, perhaps, or maybe not so friendly, a little added incentive, if you will, to, hey, deal with this when there are others. Not just you and me, but there's others that are, are hearing this too, right? But what if even then they won't listen? Well, Jesus says what? Tell it to the church. Involve others. Why? So we can gossip together about that person or that situation? No. So what? So the church as a whole can do what? Can 
ur- pray and urge reconciliation. And it is hoped at this, pers- at this point that the person will finally hear and repent. But if he will not listen to the church, then what are we to do? Uh, what are we to do there? Treat him like a tax collector. Boo, right? Says, yeah, kick him to the curb. Yes and no. All right? Says, let him be to you as a heathen or a tax collector. What does that mean? It means, oh, that you're to then, well, if they won't, at that point, what? You hate them and you speak ill of them and you have nothing to do with it. No. That's not the point. Treat them like a heathen or a tax collector means, again, what is the goal ultimately? Reconciliation, right? So it's not speaking evil of them, thinking evil of them, talking about them like that. It's what? Treating them as if they're not a believer. Praying for them. Maybe that's the problem. Have you ever thought it's possible that there are unbelievers in the church? And that maybe, maybe, in a situation where a person just adamantly refuses to hear, repent, no matter. And again, I, don't, I, I see this unfolding over time, okay? It doesn't happen all in one day. But when a person can persistently refuses to hear, maybe it's because the Spirit's not in that person, working in that person. Maybe they're not a believer. And so you treat them like a pagan, a heathen, or a tax collector. That is what you put them outside of the fellowship of believers. You treat them as someone who needs to hear and believe the gospel message. Because apparently they didn't get it the first time. Because the gospel message, as Jesus is going to show us in a moment is we who have been forgiven so much, how dare we not forgive someone else, right? So if someone is that adamantly determined not to listen, perhaps they are really not even a believer in the first place. Someone whose heart is that resistant is not giving evidence of true salvation at that point. Now listen, I am not saying the person is definitely not a believer. I'm not saying that. Because how many of you know true believers are quite capable of some really awful things, aren't we? Because we still have that fleshly nature within us. But I think Jesus is telling us what? Don't continue to have fellowship with them as if nothing is wrong. Like, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. But what? You put them out of the fellowship and you think of them as an unbeliever and someone who is to be, who needs to hear the gospel, right? So perhaps the person truly is a believer and they just need some tough love. You know, we're given an example of this in, in 1 Corinthians where we're told of a man who was sinning grievously among them and the church wasn't dealing with it. They should have been dealing with it, and they should have put him out of the fellowship. But they weren't doing it. And why was Paul telling him to put, to put someone out of fellowship? Well, first of all, it's to protect the church. 
So how many of you know if you've got a person who absolutely refuses to repent, has an attitude that that tends to spread throughout a church then, doesn't it? So putting them outside of the fellowship of the church, first of all, is a protection for the church. But second of all, and again, here's some, you know, Jesus says some things that can be a little hard for us to hear sometimes, doesn't he? The Word of God says some things that we might not like. But here in, that, in this case, in 1 Corinthians there, this man, he, they would, they, he, Paul instructed them to put him outside, what, that he may be subjected to Satan. This is hardcore discipline, right? There's no indication this man isn't a believer. This man isn't a believer, apparently, right? But... He refuses to listen. They need to put him out to protect the church because of that influence, that evil influence in the church. But then also then to put him outside of the church, it puts him outside of the realm of the support of the body of Christ, puts him into the realm of where, do you think God ever lets Satan have at a believer to teach him? And again, what's God's goal? repentance and bringing them back right and so through that this becomes something that god may use in that person's life to bring them to a place of repentance and ultimately reconciliation and restoration in the church that's what we want right i didn't want to have that surgery because oh man that's a lot of hassle so i just put up with the pain how often do we as a church, we put up with pain, we, we allow things because I don't want, we don't want to deal with that, right? We are reluctant to do this. Why? It's hard. And sometimes it just doesn't feel very loving to do that, to put somebody out of a church, to confront public, to put them out of a church. But actually... It is precisely love to do this, isn't it? Just as when God disciplines us in love. Now look, we may lack wisdom, may lack, we often <laughs> lack wisdom and how best to go about this, don't we? But if a church is committed to being obedient in this, we can be assured that God will support them. He will, in effect, have their back. God has the back of a church that does this prayerfully, carefully, in accordance with God's word. God will have that church's back. That's what he's saying there. Where am I getting that? Well, from what Jesus says next. Remember, context, right? Sometimes these next verses... We'll quote them, but we'll quote them out of context and we'll mean them to say something that I'm not saying it isn't true, but that's not the context of it here and what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about the hard work of church discipline and coming to the point of maybe where you have to put somebody out of the church. And he says then what? Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. If you have to do something hard, heaven has your back. Heaven agrees with you on this. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
oh, okay, so if we pray together and we're, we're praying about something and then if we agree together, God will... No, this is what? Again, the context is what? Church discipline. If you're doing the hard work of discipline, if you agree about this, this is what we must do, then the Father in heaven supports you in that. And he says, for where two or three... Hmm, where did we hear two or three before here? The witnesses, two or three witnesses, right? For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You know, oftentimes we will say, out of context again, right, where it's like, let's say we've got, uh, well, we've only got, uh, we, you know, we normally have 100 people here, uh, but today we've only got 10. Well, that's okay, because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. God is here with us, whether there's 10 or 100 or 1,000, right? To which I would say, well, yeah, that's true. God is with us here, whether there's 10 of us or 100 or 1,000 of us. But that's not what Jesus is talking about there. He's saying what? Where two or three are gathered together in my name. When you're gathered together, when you're doing this hard work, I am there in your midst. I've got you. I support you. I've got your back. Jesus knows it's hard to do. God knows it's hard to do. But he says, where two or three are gathered in my name to do this, I'm there with you. I'm with you in it. There I am in the midst of it. He knows it's hard. So God is present in the process of discipline, and he will back that church, which is attempting to prayerfully and biblically deal with sin in its midst in accordance with God's will. Again, I know this is not easy to do, but do you know what can make the whole process a lot easier and perhaps not even necessary oftentimes? It's when we have an attitude of gracious forgiveness. Listen to what Jesus says next. It says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, or 77 times some translations have it there. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Does this sound familiar? Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. 
Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So so here's the the procedure we're given. And again, the goal is what? Forgiveness, reconciliation. And what should be our attitude then toward that person? Extending gracious forgiveness, not holding on and being resentful and angry, but extending forgiveness to that person, right? Here we see gracious forgiveness, gracious forgiveness. Peter says to him, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? I think Peter got the shock of a lifetime here when he was expecting to get a great commendation from Christ. He thought he was being really generous, suggesting you forgive someone up to seven times. Why? Because rabbinical tradition said, forgive someone up to three times. After that, you don't have to forgive them anymore. Okay? So what does Peter say? Hmm. Seven times. I'm going to double it and add one more for good measure, right? Up to seven times. Jesus is going to be, he's going to say, Peter, you get it. Yeah, that's gracious forgiveness. Seven times. But what does Jesus say? (laughs) No, but up to 70 times seven or Many turns to what? 77, not seven times, Peter, 77 times. The point is what? We don't quit, we don't stop forgiving. It's a, it's a way of life, isn't it? There's no limit to how many times we forgive. And now some of you, your heads are already going certain places. And don't worry, we're going to get to that in a minute, all right? But right now, let's look at what he's saying here. Says we must forgive graciously without keeping count. That's the point. As I said, I favor the verse being translated as seventy-seven times, though, rather than seventy times seven. Some say seventy times seven, four hundred ninety times. No, I think it's seventy-seven times rather than seventy times seven. Why? Because of a possible interesting parallel that Jesus may be alluding to which is found in Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, you remember when Cain killed his brother Abel and God was what, sending him out and, uh, and he's punishing him. And in Genesis 4, verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So Cain is afraid that, he's going to, that somebody's going to bring vengeance upon him for what he has done. But then the Lord graciously says to him, verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So God says, God will bring vengeance on someone who harms you, Cain. I will bring vengeance sevenfold on them. Now, you still might think, well, what do you mean? What's that have to do with 77? Well, because you go down a few more verses, and what do you have? You have a descendant of Cain by, name, by the name of Lamech. 
And Lamech was a very proud man. And he says to his wives, things have already gone wrong there, his wives, plural, right? Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. See, so he's saying, oh yeah? Well, God only, God only avenges sevenfold. <laughs> I avenge seventy-sevenfold. So I think this ties in here to what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, what, just as Lamech wanted 77-fold vengeance, we are to be people who grant 77-fold forgiveness. Jesus then told a parable to illustrate why we should forgive so generously and graciously. It says, in the parable, the servant owed his master 10,000 talents It was an enormous debt he could never repay. A talent was a unit of measurement of of weight, equating to about 75 pounds. So a talent was like 70, what we would say, 75 pounds of gold or silver, okay? So 10,000 talents, that's a lot of gold and silver. That's a lot of money, isn't it? That works out to about 375 tons. Now, I got out my calculator. Actually, I say got out my calculator. I'm showing my age. We don't actually have calculators anymore, do we? We do it all on our phones now, right? Remember when you used to have, you had this, where's the calculator? To go and get your your separate calculator unit. Now you do it on the phone, right? So anyway, I got out my calculator, and I started figuring 375 tons of silver. Can you imagine how much that would be? Now, I, I looked it up. There's this thing called the Internet. Everybody heard of that and heard of that? On the internet, I looked up the price of silver. Scott, you're not to answer this because I know you, the, I know, you know the answer. What is, what is the going rate for silver right now, for an ounce of silver? What do you think it is? 19, 20. Very close. 20, about $22 an ounce right now. Okay? So with silver valued at $22 an ounce, 375 tons of silver works out to be about $264 million. That's a lot of money, right? But I thought, oh, well, what if it was gold? Okay, and again, Scott, no answer here. What is the, what is the, what is the price for an ounce of gold going for these days? 1800. 18, we got some fiscally minded folks here, yeah. Well, actually, 1800 Ha, huh, it's $1,770, Frank. You're off by 30 bucks. You're not paying attention to the market, right? So $1,770 an ounce. 375 tons of gold works out to about $21 billion. Somebody out there saying, I don't know, I don't believe this. I'm going to check this myself. And I know you're doing it, and if you're not doing it now, you're thinking you're going to do it later because that's exactly what I would be doing. I guarantee you, if I was hearing somebody, that's like, I'm going to check that math. You know? So, but trust me, the math is correct. $21 billion. The point here is what? It is a huge amount of money, that this servant could never repay that. Whether it was millions or billions in today's terms, it was a huge amount. Meanwhile, then, this, and he's forgiven this huge amount. Meanwhile, then, a fellow servant owes another servant 
uh, this fellow servant owes the servant who was forgiven so much a hundred denarii. A denarius was a day's wages for a common laborer. So a hundred denarii is what? A hundred days wages for a common laborer. Now, if we put that in our terms today, if we figure a laborer working for, say, $15 an hour for 100 days of work, that works out to about $12,000. Now, you know what? $12,000 is not an insignificant amount of money, is it? It's not. $12,000 is a significant amount of money. But what is that compared to millions or billions of dollars? says nothing, isn't it? It is as nothing. Now, of course, Jesus isn't talking about a debt of money here, is he? No, he's talking about sin debt, the debt of sin that we owe, that we owe God, and that maybe someone else owes us. We all owed God millions or billions of dollars in sin debt, but he graciously forgave it, how much of it? All of it. How dare we not forgive our brother who owes us a comparatively tiny sin debt? How dare we? Now, I'm not going to go into my imitation of Greta Thunberg at this moment, right? How dare we, right? But so how dare we not forgive we who have been forgiven all by a righteous and holy and gracious God, how dare we not forgive our brother of a... It's not an insignificant amount, is it? $12,000? But what is that compared to what we owe God? Nothing. Nothing. You see, and God takes this very seriously... And he says, he will judge the believer who forgives, who refuses to forgive his brother from the heart. I know where some of you were thinking as we're going through, so I just want to touch on this briefly here, okay? Let's talk for a little bit about forgiveness. We've been talking about forgiveness. First of all, what is forgiveness? Well, at the heart of forgiveness is the idea of release. Release, it's letting something go. We are releasing, when we forgive someone, we are releasing them from their moral debt to us. We are giving up the right to exact payment for our sin, for their sin. See, when God forgives us, he is releasing that moral debt. But he's not unjust to do it. He's just in doing that. Why? Because... Christ paid for it, right? So he's not an unjust God. He's a gracious God who paid the penalty for our sin himself, right? And so he says we too then ought to extend that kind of gracious forgiveness to others. We release that person from their moral debt they owe us. God forgives our sin because Christ paid for it. And because he paid for it, we do not need to pay for it ourselves. What an incredible demonstration then to us of love, grace, and generosity. And in the same way then, we are to have that same attitude 
of love, grace, and generosity toward one another. When we forgive someone, we're releasing them from the moral debt they owe us. We are giving up the right to exact payment for what they did. And we can do this because we have been forgiven so much by God. Now here's some of the objections. I hear you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one right here, but I just want to touch on a brief. Now it is true Forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation or a full restoration of relationship, does it? I know that sometimes that simply is not possible. It, it is also true. Forgiveness does not mean this, that there is a lack of consequences necessarily, right? God forgives us, but there still may be consequences of that in our lives, right? It's also true, we can forgive someone, but that doesn't mean that we trust them in the same way we did before, does it? So we can forgive, but it may not mean that the relationship is restored with no ill effects whatsoever. I understand that. God knows that. God still imposes consequences on us for our sins sometimes, doesn't he? And it's also true, though, but what? Forgiveness is a choice, It's an act of the will. It's not a feeling. Well, I will forgive when I feel like forgiving. Well, if we wait until we feel like forgiving, how many of us will never forgive at all, right? You don't feel like forgiving. You choose to forgive. You choose to release. Forgiveness is an act of the will to choose to release a person from the moral debt to us. And it may take a long time for our feelings to catch up with that choice. But it's first and foremost a choice. Forgiveness also doesn't necessarily mean that all the hurt goes away either, does it? Now, over time, it may well lessen. But there may also be some residue of hurt feelings in our hearts. Perhaps some, we may live with that for the rest of our lives. But we've chosen to forgive. Now, it's true, too. Some have said, well, we should not forgive unless the person acknowledges their sin and repents. Well, I don't think that is the case. But even if you do think so, some would say that. No, you don't forgive. You only forgive the person who repents and asks for it. To which I would say, all right, okay, but... I think you still must come to terms with the ugly nature and consequences of holding on and holding on and holding on to that moral debt someone owes you. It's exhausting. And it's very unhealthy for our bodies and our souls. We would do well to release it. I'm going to ask your forgiveness for the length of the message here today in a moment, but... It has been said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Right? Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting someone... Oh, yeah? You did that to me? Well, watch this and drink poison and then look, wait for them to die. That's unforgiveness. One final thing on forgiveness. If we forgive someone that does not necessarily mean that someone is getting away with their sin. Why? Because God is the judge. 
and he will have the last word on all matters moral. Which, by the way, is why Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Why? Well, I think it's, it's good for us to do that, but he tells us to pray for them because he's a just God. You better pray for them because he's a just God. So forgiving someone doesn't mean like, oh, then I just, it's okay what they did and they're just going to get away with it. Well, no, they're not. So what? Followers of Christ are called to pursue reconciliation and grant gracious forgiveness. Say this, pursue reconciliation as God pursued you. We're followers of Christ. We're to imitate him. What did God do? He pursued us, didn't he? So we are to pursue those who've sinned against us. As he pursued, we sinned against him. He pursued us. He pursued the reconciliation. So we too are to pursue one another, to pursue the reconciliation. And that's hard to do, but it's better than the alternative. Pursue reconciliation as God pursued you, and then what? Grant forgiveness. Grant forgiveness as God forgave you. And I hope I touched on all those caveats and objections that might have been going in your mind when we were talking about it, right? But the point is, we are to do what? Forgive up to seven times? No, but up to 77 times. Unlimited. Unless you're married, Unless you're married Pam says. <laughs> That's the 400. Actually, yeah, I think, uh, I think the, uh, the single person's text says 77 times. The married person text is translated 70 times 7, 490 times, right? Exactly. Yeah, maybe it should be you married people 490 times, up to 77. Nope. Single people, 77 times. Married people, 490 times, right? There you go. All the more. Grant forgiveness as God forgave you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the grace that you have extended to us in Christ. Lord, forgive us for our disobedience to your word on this, that, Lord, we are so quick to want to build up in resentment, maybe gossip or talk about a person or a situation to others instead of going to that person ourselves. So I pray then, Father, that you would give us the courage and the boldness in love and for the purpose of reconciliation to do that. And Lord, I pray that if we're on the other end of that, if someone comes to us, that we've sinned against them, that we would hear them, that you would give us a heart to hear them, to be made right with that brother, that sister. This is hard, Lord. But your grace is sufficient, even for this. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.